Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. If we haven't met, my name's Ryan Moore. I'm the pastor of care here at the Life Christian Church, and uh, our lead pastor, Terry Smith, he is in St. Louis uh, today, um, preaching and teaching, so please pray for him today. We thank you that you've taken some time out during this Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, holiday weekend to be with us. And so we are in the midst of a new series titled Thrive, Flourish in Faith and Life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity and this time to get into your word. We pray, Lord, that you would reveal to us more of your character, who you are, that we would be encouraged in our faith. May your Holy Spirit help us as we study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The warning track is the part of the baseball field that is closest to the wall or fence and is made of a different material than the field. Common materials for the warning track include dirt or rubber. It should always be a different material than the playing field. The change of terrain serves as a warning for fielders trying to make a deep catch that you are running out of room. So you better make sure you stop or make sure you see the wall. Since it's often difficult for a fielder to keep his eye on the ball and to see where he's at, they keep this warning track in every Major League Baseball, in every baseball field, so that they can know where they are close to that wall. The year was 2012. It was personally a very productive year for me. I was pastoring youth in New York City. Many of the young people were coming to know the Lord. They were getting baptized. Um, I was establishing events and teaching and traveling, doing retreats, being a dad. And by the end of the year, I felt kind of spent, depleted. And I got up one night and blacked out. I didn't see the warning track. And I hit the wall. I hit the wall hard. I ignored the warning track spiritually in my life. I was doing a lot, but I wasn't consistently abiding so that my life could thrive. As Pastor Terry last week defined flourishing as to flourish is to have a thriving well-being in every dimension of life. Physically, I wasn't thriving because I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do to get enough rest. Spiritually, inconsistent in my time of abiding with God and emotionally as well. So as people today, we live in a world where what we do tends to define us. However, as Christ followers, we can't let that happen. We can't be people living on fumes and not flourishing. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't serve, we give, or, or go. It means we do all of that out of a heart of gratitude for what God has already done for us. As 2023 came to an end, I reflected and I was thankful that I haven't hit the wall since. I've come to the wall pretty close, but I've recognized the warning track now. My goal this year is to thrive. And it's two things, to know him better and to love him more. So let's define spiritual flourishing. To spiritually flourish is to consistently open our lives to God in order to experience personal and communal transformation. To spiritually flourish 
is to consistently open our lives to God in order to experience personal and communal transformation. So today, I want to give you some pillars that have personally sustained me in the last 12 years that has helped me to flourish spiritually. Let's look at scripture in Mark chapter 1 today. Mark chapter 1, verse 32 through 35, it says this. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Verse 35 says this. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. I want to give you pillar number one. Pillar number one is a combination. It's prayer and solitude. Prayer and solitude. Let's look at prayer first. Prayer reveals an intense longing to commune with God. Prayer reveals this intense longing to commune with God. What an amazing day. Jesus is healing people in the town from various diseases, evil spirits. You would think it's time for Jesus to get a little rest and relaxation, kind of catch his breath, reflect a bit. Maybe Jesus could sleep in. But despite our Savior's humanity, and we know he had to have human fatigue going on after a day like that, I want you to notice what happened in verse 35. It says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. He left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. What an amazing time. After all that the Son of Man had just accomplished, despite his human fatigue, he, was in, he had this intense desire to spend time with the Father. Somehow I, I can see him getting up from that room where he was sleeping. It was still dark. The stars are out. I can see him quietly slipping out of the house to a secluded place, far from everyone, far from the possibility of someone hearing his voice. And there he drops to his knees and he begins to pray. Let's examine this closely. Any of you who have spent time teaching know that it can be an exhausting task, especially when you're interacting with people as the Lord had done that day. And on top of that, if you've ever experienced spiritual forces of evil while you're doing something like that, it is utterly exhausting. Yet we see here, Jesus doesn't give up. Jesus doesn't sleep in. Instead, we see him longing to be with his father in communion. Now, remember, Jesus knew that his source of strength and certainly the place where he would go to request all that the father had given him was in prayer. But we see that his intense longing for intimate communion was motivated primarily by his perfect love and intimate enjoyment of sweet fellowship with the Father. Hopefully, we are experiencing this in our own walk. Think about it. No human being except the God-man Jesus has ever known the soul 
satisfying joy of perfect fellowship and communion with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. While us as believers, every believer, we enjoy some level of joy and fellowship because of the varying places we are with respect to our walk with Christ, we still, even though our fellowship is imperfect, we still enjoy spending time with the Lord. But I think about our imperfect fellowship that we have right now. Our communion is hampered because of sin, because of our unredeemed bodies that wait glorification. And this is why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 9 and 10, for we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. But even now, in our state of unredeemed humanness, that sweetness, that joy of communing with the lover of our souls is the greatest experience that we have on this side of heaven. And all of us who have truly tasted of the Lord, who have experienced the inexpressible joy of being in his presence, have experienced his power, we want more of it. We want more and more of it. And we're never satisfied. And that is why David says in Psalms 34, verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes what? Refuge in him. In the same way that we can taste our favorite foods and savor them, we can also enjoy God's goodness. This scripture teaches us if we want the goodness of the Lord in our life, we need to be intentional about it. Once we develop a relationship with God by feeding our minds with his word and putting our trust in him, we'll experience the fullness of God's blessings towards us. But tasting God's goodness is just the start. The experience of tasting leads to seeing. If we believe in our hearts that God is good, then our eyes will be open to seeing his goodness on display in our lives as we thrive every day with him. God has given each of us so many blessings through the simple things like getting here safely today. Thank you, God. To the big earth-shattering moments that takes an unexpected turn in our life that we never saw coming, the goodness of God never changes. And we're able to see God's blessing just like we can see the sunset or an ocean because God is good all the time. Amen? I, I was talking with a couple of people and someone in the group said, you know, hey, you know, God is good all the time. And the person said, no, that's a cliche. I don't say that. And I said, wait a minute. That's not a cliche. That is the truth. God is good all the time, and he always acts in his goodness towards us. And so the outcome of both tasting and seeing is believing in the goodness of God through both the good times and the bad times. We can all probably say right here, we've seen the good times of God and the many blessings upon it and his goodness. But then also, we've gone through some bad times in life. But we also saw how good he was in the bad. God shows his character 
by blessing us with his mercy, blessing us with his compassion, blessing us with his kindness, blessing us with his love, because he's what? He's good. And we're able to taste and see his goodness surrounding us when we need him the most. He loves us and wants to share his goodness with us. So if you want to see the goodness of God and his blessings, just taste and see them for yourself today as you commune with him in prayer. Amen? West Orange Campus, are you experiencing the goodness of God today? All right, let's, let's go. So we've learned so far that prayer reveals an intense longing to commune with God. But the second part of that pillar is solitude. Solitude provides an opportunity for intimacy. Solitude provides an opportunity for intimacy. What is solitude? Scriptural solitude is the biblical practice of temporarily withdrawing to privacy for spiritual purposes. The period of solitude may last only a few minutes or it may last a few days, but generally it's sought in order to engage in other spiritual exercises without the distractions typical in the presence of people. Let's examine Mark chapter 1, verse 36 and 37. Mark 1, verse 36 and 37 says, Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Notice verse 36. This is fascinating. Simon and his companions were on a hunt, a search to find Jesus. Where is he? And they found him. And they said, everyone's looking for you. Now, let's get some context here. They wake up. It's breakfast time. Where's Jesus? Do you see Jesus? Did you see him? I don't see him. Where's he at? I don't know. Oh, my goodness. Look outside. The whole town's outside. Where's Jesus? So they go out, and they search for him. And they actually find him. They say, everyone's looking for you. So the idea here is they're a bit frustrated. You know, frustrated with Jesus. They, they get there, and they're like, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. What are you doing here on the hillside all alone? Don't you see? You're missing such a great opportunity, Jesus. Look at all the people back at the town, at the house. They're looking for you. There's seekers everywhere. You've connected with the culture. The crowd is waiting for you, Jesus. And I love verse 38. Jesus replies, let's go somewhere else. What? Go somewhere else? Yeah, let's go somewhere else. Jesus replied in verse 38, Mark 1, let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. And what we see here is by praying in a secluded place, Jesus stayed on assignment. He stayed on assignment. He wasn't being tossed by, oh, we got all these people back at the next town in the village. They're waiting for you, Jesus. This is the moment. He's like, no, let's go to the next town because that's the reason I have come. So Jesus knew his priority was to preach the gospel. Souls needed to be saved, yes. What would have happened if Jesus allowed himself to get stuck in a town doing meaningful but not purpose 
driven things. Meaningful, but not purpose-driven. So Jesus was purpose-driven. And Jesus took his message to all the towns around him. He didn't stay in one place to build a passionate fan base. He didn't lose sight of his mission to take the good news to everyone that he could. And so for us, work, personal projects, church responsibilities, they're all good things. But if they don't align with our God-given purpose, then they become distractions. But when we pursue our God-given assignments wholeheartedly, undistractedly, we'll ultimately be pursuing Jesus and we flourish and thrive in every aspect of our life. Every aspect of our life. Let me give you two benefits of solitude. Number one, solitude provides perspective And number two, solitude aids recovery from activity. Solitude provides perspective. Jesus sought solitude, and he spent the night in prayer on many occasions throughout Scripture. And he clearly found perspective he needed for such decisions that he would make. And so it's clear that he found perspective with his time with the Father, away from the crowd. Second, solitude aids recovery from activity. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. We see this here in Mark chapter 1. Too often, we keep doing and doing, going and going to the point of illness or collapse. And Jesus knew that solitude is an antidote to activity, aiding a return from chronic human doing to our created state of human being. Jesus is the greatest example of one who thrived as he carried out the Father's mission and fulfilled his purpose in life. And so we are to imitate what Christ did for us. And this has been a huge pillar in my life, to slow down, to commune with God, to hear his voice. Just this week, it was a lot of responsibilities I was managing and taking care of and knowing that Sunday's coming. And then just personal stuff that you take on and burdens that you feel. And Tuesday was my day to prep. And, and in our production and the sense of producing as a human being and you want to do, you want to succeed, it's so easy for me to just get to the work, get to the study, open up the books. But that morning I woke up I said, the first place I'm going is to the park because everything else can wait. I went to the park and I was in solitude. I was praying. Sometimes I pray in the grass. The grass was too wet that day. But I pray in the grass and it's just me and God. That's my place where I hear him. He gives me perspective and it's the best place to be. Everything else can wait. Because I'm spending time with God. He's speaking to me. He's giving me perspective. And time spent with God is time well spent. Pillar number two is the certainty of the word of God. The certainty of the word of God. Since the Bible, the word of God, 
carries ultimate authority for our lives and is absolutely reliable because God does not lie. The Bible is trustworthy. In Psalm 119, and I won't read all those verses, longest psalm, right? The psalmist lists why the Bible is so valuable for us. The Bible shows us what is right and wrong. God, as our designer, shows us the true design of life through his word. His instructions for life are clear. You see that in verses 100 through 102. The word instructs us and leads us to truth. So it opens our eyes. See that in verses 18, 105, and 130. We think we know the truth, but in some ways life and our own shortness of the glory of God and sin has put a big cataract on our eyes. So we need the Bible to restore our ability to see. So the Bible points us to the way of wisdom. See that in Psalm 119, verse 24, and then 99 and 100. The Bible leads us through the dangerous minefield of worldly foolishness, gimmicks, and the ever-changing definition of what is true and dependable. The Word of God revives us. Word of God restores us. We see that in verse 25 of Psalm 119. The word of God will bring spiritual life back to our bones and will lead us back into relationship with God. Scripture also leads us to happiness, peace, and joy. It does this by introducing us to the Lord, who is the sole source of happiness, peace, and joy. We see that in verse 93. And then the word reveals God's character and his promises. The Bible reveals God not as some impersonal force way out there in the great beyond, but as the God who wants to be personally involved in your lives. One of the conclusions we draw from Psalm 119 is that the Bible is more than just another religious book. It's not an academic textbook for learning about religion or even life. The Bible is a dynamic book. It is living. It is the living word. So it speaks words that have power. It's a love letter from the Almighty. It is a resource for understanding. It's a collection of God's promises. So the Bible is unique, special, wonderful, and cherished. But it's not the book itself that makes it powerful, as if the authors just have some special type of energy on it. It's the fact that this book we call the Bible brings us close to God. In other words, we're not being told to worship the book as a book. We are told we should read this book, and we're led by this book to worship the Lord God Almighty. So in Psalm 119 tells us how then we should use this word. Two things we'll look at here in in these verses is in verse Uh, Two of Psalm 119. Psalm 119 verse 2 says, Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. So in other words, search for God in the Bible. Search for God in this book. We are to search for God with what? All of our hearts in his word. In other words, we should read it not primarily to learn facts and master information. We should read this book hungry to know and embrace the God of all creation. You know, we can also then measure our lives by this book we call the Bible. 
Psalm 119 verse 6 says this, then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. Why? When we measure ourselves by success, we will find frustration. Why? First of all, no one defines success the same way. You could go to one city and people go, wow, you, you've arrived, you made it. You go somewhere else and they go, you need to step up your game. Second, there will always be someone that we view as more successful than we are. And that leaves us feeling inadequate and deficient, maybe unworthy at times. And so the only standard of measurement that is reliable is the word of God. This is because God views us from the perspective of eternity. He measures us in the terms of the relationship that we have with him. So as we read the Bible, we need to take things personally. We need to ask the question, am I doing what God's word is telling me I should be doing? Or should I not be doing? Those are the things we should ask ourselves personally in Scripture. And so God's word is certain. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 says this. I've written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, and what was the purpose of writing this? So that you may know you have eternal life. God wants us to know. God doesn't want us to be in a fog or uncertain about our relationship with him. He wants us to know. He wants, us to, he wants to give us assurance. He wants us to stand then on his promise and believe what he says in his word. God's faithfulness to his word is what gives us our confidence of our relationship with him and our salvation. Our assurance then is not based on our own lives or our feelings. After you ask the Lord to come into your life, and we've, those of us who've asked the Lord to come into our life, we've all let God down sometimes. We're going to fall short sometimes. There'll be times that we are discouraged and we don't always feel like God is present in our heart. But if you're looking for feelings for the assurance of your relationship with God, you will be disappointed. Don't trust your feelings. Trust the word of God. Amen? Amen? Amen. Trust what God's word says about our relationship with him because his word is certain. We can be certain of every promise that he makes to us in the word. In our times of trial, we can count on his promises. And so when he says he will be our refuge and strength, a very present help in the times of trouble, I want you to know he will be. When, we, when he says, I'm with you always, even to the end, he will be with you. When he says, no one will snatch you out of my hand, they will not. And when he says, all things, wait a minute, God, all things, all things work together for good to those who love God. They will work together. Wait a minute. It don't feel like it's working together, Ryan. I know what you mean. It doesn't look like it's working together. I know what you mean. This is painful and hurting. When is God going to step through? I want you to know we can still take him at his word. All things, 
work together for good to those who love God so they will work together because he's God. And the scripture says all of God's promises are true. We can go to the bank with them because the Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. Impossible. I think I'm getting ready for the Spanish ministry. <laughs> he can't lie. Hebrews 6, 18. It's impossible for him to do it. If there's one thing God can't do, can't lie. Can't lie. Everything else he can do. <laughs> he can't lie. So put your trust in his promises. Trust him to the end. Maybe you're in a difficult spot right now. Trust God. Not because I said it, because he says it in his word. Trust that what he says in his word to you is certain and it is reliable. Amen? Finally, pillar number three, fellowship. We can't do this alone. We need others to come alongside us because God has designed it that way. And when he puts others in our life, he uses them mightily so that we can then fulfill the dreams that God has for us. So fellowship is the third pillar. Fellowship refers to our common life together. The word fellowship is translated from the Greek word kononia in the New Testament. Kononia is sometimes translated as participation. Sometimes it's translated partnership, sharing, or communion. So if you want a good definition, here we go. Fellowship is a relationship between individuals which involves active participation in a common interest and thereby each other. Fellowship is a relationship between individuals which involves active participation in a common interest and thereby each other. We see this in scripture in Acts chapter 2, verse 44. It says, all the believers were what? Together and had everything in common. All were together because every believer knew they belonged to each other. The phrase were together means they made it a practice. They made it a practice to gather together all the time. And this is the similar thought we see in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. All the believers were united in heart and in mind. I want you to know this. We have to stay plugged in. We gotta stay plugged into our church family and fellowship. And, and the reason why is I'll say this one, God has designed it that way. But number two, we tend to, if we unplug, we tend to unravel. Meaning we're not connected to, you know, a, a fellowship or a, a life group or serving in some capacity or just getting to know someone on a deeper level that you can go out for coffee and hang out and pray for each other and encourage each other. If we're not doing that, we tend to unravel. Things start to break down because we're not flourishing and thriving in every aspect of our life because we're not connected to the sources that God has given us. And that's each other, right? So we have to stay connected. And Hebrews chapter 10 says this in verse 24 and 25, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And so I want you to know this. Fellowship is not a suggestion from Scripture or an option. 
It's a command. You have to be connected to the body of Christ. You have to be connected to a body, a local body. Here at TLCC, if you make TLCC your home, please get connected. Don't unravel. Thrive this year in your relationship with God. And so Tim Challies uh, believes this passage in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, provides two reasons many believers may be tempted to neglect gathering together in fellowship with each other. Number one, you forget what you bring. You forget what you bring. We have the responsibility to stir up other believers to great love and labor for the Lord. The simple fact is we cannot do these things if we're not together. We all have a gift to bring, and the church is only complete when we all bring it and use it. So it may be a life group. It may be just coming to church on Sunday. It may be life teams or connecting with someone. But if people are coming into our midst and maybe someone's discouraged and you have the gift of encouragement and you weren't there, we're not complete. If, if someone is really going through a very hard time, maybe they're in grief and you have the gift of mercy and compassion and you're not connected, you're not there, that's what you bring to the table, your gift to the table, that person goes away in the same state that he was. And so we forget what we bring, but also you forget what you need. Just as you're gifted to help others, so others are gifted to encourage you. As, as Christ follows, we are incomplete if we're not plugged into our church, family, because God has designed us to flourish and thrive in community with other Christians. I'm so happy for those I've made friendships with here at TLCC because I know I can go to them at times and they can just give me space and place and hold that for me to encourage me, to say, I'm praying for you. What's going on in your life? What can I be encouraging you in God's word with? And so I appreciate that because sometimes as pastors, we may feel like, you know, I'm going to be, but no, just like you, I need encouragement too. And that's why we're designed that way. Never forget that we're connected to each other. So let's not unplug. Let's plug in as we flourish together as believers in Christ. Acts chapter 2, verse 46 says this. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. In verse 46, we see these new believers were committed to growth by gathering in both large groups and smaller settings and in both formal and informal settings, day by day, attending the temple together, the scripture says, and breaking bread in their homes. Notice this wasn't a once in a while thing. You know, I do it quarterly when I get an opportunity. The scripture says it was day by day. The idea for us is that we do it over and over, meaning we're consistent with it. We're consistently engaged. We're consistently gathering together. And so my challenge for you today is, what's your plan? Rarely do great things just happen. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. 
Peter places on us as believers the decision to grow spiritually. And since we have defined spiritual flourishing as to spiritually flourish is to consistently, consistently open our lives to God in order to experience personal and communal transformation. So let me give you two applications, one personal, one communal. Personal, seven minutes with God. Why do you say seven minutes? Seven minutes, this is something Navigator's ministry has implemented, and I use this with a lot of the young people that I ministered to. And I just challenged them. I said, all of us are going to do this this year. I said, seven minutes with God. We're going to see what God does, and it, what it does is it gives us discipline. This gives us discipline that we'll do it each and every day because then we'll see seven minutes becomes 15 minutes, 20 minutes, half hour, to the point where we forget track of time because we're in the midst of God and his presence. So here it is. Seven minutes with God. Half a minute, prepare your heart. Maybe invest the first 30 seconds preparing your heart. Maybe you might pray, Lord, cleanse my heart so you can speak to me through the scriptures. Make my mind alert my soul active, and my heart responsive. Surround me with your presence during this time. And then four minutes of scripture reading. Take the next four minutes, read the Bible. Your greatest need is to hear a word from God. Maybe he'll speak to you in a sentence. Maybe it's just one word. But whatever he says in the scripture, you want to hear that. So allow the word to strike a fire in your heart and meet the author. And then two and a half minutes talking to God in prayer. After God has spoken through his book, then you can converse with him in prayer. One method to incorporate four areas of prayer is the ACTS acronym. And that is adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. You could start with the prayer of adoration. God, I thank you for you being so awesome, so good, so loving. Thank you for your presence today. Adoration. Confession. God, I need your overflowing forgiveness and mercy. I fall short. Sometimes I do the things I should not do. Sometimes I neglect the things I should do. So forgive me. Thanksgiving. Thank you, God, for all the wonderful things you've done in my life. I appreciate you. My heart is filled with gratitude. And then supplication. Bring your request to God. That's what supplication is, is bringing your request to God. Bring your request to God for others and yourself. So while you're there, pray for those who are on your job. If you're a student here today, pray for those who are in your school. Pray for your teachers. Teachers, pray for your students. Pray for this world that we live in. Pray for our communities and cities that we live in as well. Pray for our church. Pray for the brothers and sisters who attend our churches, services. And then pray for yourself. Put yourself in there. God, this is what I need today. I can't do it without you. I need your wisdom. I need your presence. Acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Finally, communal. Communal is this. Here at TLCC, we have numerous resources to assist you in staying plugged in, and we want you to thrive this year. 
So go to tlcc.org slash spiritual growth. We have daily devotionals that could help you out with this. You can join a life group, life teams. We have special events. We have something in March with uh, pastoral staff, which we will call Listening Through Lent Workshop. It's going to help you thrive, help you listen and hear God, and taking those resources and tools every day that can help you thrive and flourish in your, your walk, your spiritual walk, and your life with God. Would you please stand with me as I offer a prayer? Unite your hearts and your minds with me as we pray. Almighty and merciful God, we come before you in Jesus' name. This week, as we practice the stillness of solitude, our hearts yearn to commune with you. For prayer unveils our intense longing for your divine presence. As we embrace the quiet moments, grant us the grace to experience intimacy with you this week, where our souls find solace and connection in your boundless love. We stand firm in the certainty of your word, Father. It's a guiding light to our journey of faith. May your truth illuminate our paths and anchor our spirits in an unwavering trust. In fellowship, link us in our common life together. We seek the richness of community. And may your Holy Spirit bless us that we may thrive in this sacred togetherness, supporting each other and lifting each other up in our journeys with you, Lord. So, Father, grant us the wisdom to cherish the beauty of prayer, the solace of solitude, and the certainty of your word, and the richness of the fellowship that we have with each other and you. May the Holy Spirit dwell richly within us, fostering growth and abundance in these realms of our spiritual life. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all the church said, amen. Amen. Amen.